Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm Jade Scott. We are live today with the amazing Della Buttergig, who I'd like to introduce everybody. Hey, Della. Hello. Della joined me as one of the business owners from Melbourne Osteo Health. She's an osteopath, and we're very, very familiar with her work for those of us who are in osteopathy at the moment. She was part of the faculty for many, many years teaching Zizi students and has a vested interest and a passion in pain science, pain science management, and also stemming back everything from neurology, physiology, just a wealth of knowledge that I have been privileged to over the years. And I know personally I could listen to you talk all day. But, um, yeah, thank you very, very much for joining us. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. So in an effort to get to know you a little bit better, firstly, just a couple of hard-hitting questions for you. Tell us the book that you're reading at the moment. Uh, what have I been reading? Um, the last book I read was... Well, I'm, I'm one of those annoying people who has about six different books on the go. Um, but probably the, the last thing I, I read was a nerdy neuroscience book um, that was actually really, really interesting. And it was a bit of a um, look at how neuroscience is now catching up to some of the things they dreamed up in Star Wars. But anyway, don't hold any of that against me. <laughs> okay. And um, what about, here's another hard-hitting question for you, because I... I like the intellect of this question. If from this moment forward you could keep only one thing, your physical state or your mental state moving forward, which would you choose? Mental. Okay. Yeah, and, hands down. And the most important question of all, do you consider Crocs a, an acceptable form of footwear? Never. <laughs> yes. I'm in complete yeah. agreement with you there, Jade. This is why we're friends. Yeah. Um, and another one, just to throw a curveball in here and to put you on the spot, but it is what we are most passionate about as Growth Direct, and that is quality leadership and showcasing the amazing contributions of other people. What does leadership mean to you? Uh, leadership is, for me, is actually just about helping other people to find their own way. It's not, it's not about what I can tell you or what I do. It's actually just about supporting people to be brave enough to find their own way. Because we we, we're all capable of, of so much, but we all achieve those things in different ways and giving people the confidence to step forward and, and to find their way, I think is where it's at. Perfectly said. So, look, I, I've had the pleasure of working with you and, and I, I would say considering myself a friend of yours for many years. And as I said, I could listen to you talk all day. Your passion for pain science and where we're going to be talking a lot about headaches, migraines, chronic pain, suffering, biopsychosocial patterns that we've dived into many times before. Uh, you're brilliant at going off on tangents, so please go ahead and do that today. But how did this start for you? How did your passion in, in pain science start? And what, what triggers you to keep investing into it? Because one of the things that I hear you say constantly is that we could all be doing better. And I totally agree with you. So how did it all start? Um, when I went through uni, I was lucky enough to have some really inspiring neuroscience lecturers. Um, and that, I think, just created a, a passion for me and a real interest. And so I just I started diving deeper and deeper into neuroscience. And it was really just, I think I was confronted by this constant chatter back, back then of how I guess of the permanency of injury and dysfunction, um, particularly in a, in a neurological context, the old ideas before, you know, the advent of neuroplasticity that, you know, the, the concept of neuroplasticity, that we just didn't get better from certain things and that people could never expect to. And yet in my patient cohort, I kept seeing examples of how that just blatantly wasn't true. Um, and so I guess for me, it, it just sparked that, that curiosity that, well, why do some people get better and some people don't? And what are some of the factors at play? And, you know, I guess I'm just lucky that my curiosity 
the timing was just right. And in the last 15 years, neuroscience has absolutely exploded and, and pain science has exploded. And I guess why am I still interested and why do I keep throwing myself into it is because it's just never, cha it, it's, it's constantly changing. I can't keep up. I can't catch up, you know, which is, is wonderful. It, you know, there's always something to sink your teeth into. And look, in, in osteopathy, I know, and I'm really privileged to use this platform to be able to introduce you to the wider allied health professionals out there. We all deal with headaches and migraines and all that sort of stuff all the time. And I, I know from personal experience that any course you deliver sells out within days, which is a real credit to you. And even I'm watching on Facebook here as people are, are jumping in, you're, you're certainly... Um, a bit of a celebrity in this field, I would say. Um, so, and in true Dallas style, you've put together some slides and you're going to take us through some of that information today. So I'm kind of going to hand over to you a little bit so that you can do what you do best. Um, Thank you. And I'll be here to guide some conversation and to also offer some feedback. I'll also have a look through some of the comments and the traffic and the feedback coming through the Facebook page. But yep. if you want to share your slides and, and take over, I'll, I'll hand over to you. All right. So I'll, I'll start by sort of, I guess, prefacing this as um, this is by no means a deep dive. This is really, as Jade mentioned, one of the questions I, I constantly ask myself um, and I'm constantly asking my team is how can we do better? Um, and so really that's, what today is about is trying to give you an overview, a bird's eye view of what an evidence-based approach for us allied practitioners, what an evidence-based approach to headache patients might be. Um, and it's, as I said, a bird's eye view. I want people looking at this to first up acknowledge that they're probably already doing a lot right, um, but that there's probably ways that we can fill some gaps. And, and I guess the, the aim is to help each, each therapist identify where those gaps in their practice might be. Um, so the first question is, is why headache? Um, and it's pretty simple. It's one of the most common presentations that we see both in osteopathy and allied health for general practice for neurology. It accounts for about a third of all neurology referrals. Um, so it's, it's huge. Assessment and diagnosis can both be really difficult. Um, the impact of poorly managed headaches is enormous, okay, in terms of the lived experience for the patient, economic impacts, health impacts, it's, it's enormous. And frankly, the bottom line is, I think we can do better. Um, so that's, that's why I wanted to talk about this today. The scale of the problem is overwhelming. Headache is our third most prevalent cause of chronic pain um, and withdrawal from the workforce and all of that sort of stuff. 4.9 million Australians, that's enormous. About just shy of 8% of those are chronic, meaning they're spending 15 days a month with a, a headache or more. Um, you know, we've got almost 400,000 of, of those. Nearly all migraine sufferers have experienced kind of reductions in their ability to participate in work, in social lives, in family lives. And the direct and indirect cost of that is, is around 36 billion a year. So this is an enormous problem. We've got, you know, another 50% again of people who experience tension type headaches. Um, and we think at least 60% of those have similar reductions in their ability to participate in a full life. So this is an enormous problem. And as I said, I really think we can, we can do better. Um, we know that in terms of chronic pain overall, we're seeing from the evidence, less than 10% of patients with chronic non-cancer pain are getting appropriate effective care. Um, but the literature tells us that from what we now know about pain, we should be able to achieve about 80% or potentially even a little more. So there's this huge gap. And we know as therapists, we're all out there trying to do the right things. We're all trying to do the best by our patients. You know, I don't for a moment question anybody's integrity or, or what their drive is, but I think we all need to look at ourselves and look at that literature and, and really go, okay, we're not where we could be. Um, and that's, 
I think, a gap that we, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but I, I think unless we interrogate our weaknesses, it, it becomes really hard to, to overcome them. In Australia at the moment, um, less than 1% of chronic pain patients are referred for multidisciplinary care. Um, and that's a real issue because we know that's the, the gold standard. Um, and we know that less than 2% of people with chronic migraine are currently utilising prophylactic treatments, um, and the, which astounds me. Um, but I did also read something else this week that suggested that less than 10% of migraine sufferers are aware that there are prophylactic treatments. So there's this huge discussion that needs to be happening, not only in allied health, but across all fields for, for managing these patients. So how do we start to do better? That's really the question that we're trying to answer. Everybody is familiar, I'm sure, with the IHS classification. There is an updated version. It was published in 2018 after five years in, in beta. Um, we have practice guidelines for headaches. Everybody's heard of practice guidelines. Everyone's familiar, particularly with the low back pain practice guidelines. Um, potentially less familiar with those for, for managing headache. I've linked these here, I'm not going into them, but I, I do wanna say we, we know that the uptake of, or the, the translation of guidelines into practice is only at about 40%. And that is massively skewed by compensable patients because it's, it's essential. We, you know, therapists don't, don't really have much of a choice there. Um, and so what we see is most of our compensable patients are being managed according to guidelines. And unfortunately, most of those who are not, are not. Okay, so that's the first step. I've, I've linked a couple of options there with, with some resources so that people can familiarise themselves with those. Again, this is just a, a summary of the IHS classification. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but we've got primary headaches that are obviously not attributed to any other disorder, secondary where the headache is attributed to another cause or disorder, and then we've got our neuropathic head pain, um, like trigeminal um, neuralgias or glossopharyngeal, whatever they might be, um, post-stroke patients, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we all see a smattering of, you know, neuralgias and, and neuropathic post-stroke type pain or, you know, post-apetic pain, whatever it might be. But I think the bulk of what we see probably falls into that either primary or, or mixed primary secondary type picture. So the first question is really how do we apply pain science to, to a headache type scenario? And I think the first thing we need to do as I would argue with any sort of musculoskeletally perceived pain, is we start with pain typing. Okay, so are we dealing with a nociceptive, neuropathic, nociplastic or mixed pain presentation? And again, you know, I would say all of us are probably very familiar with the IHS classifications. Most people are starting to become more pain science savvy and would be very familiar with these sorts of, of distinctions. But I guess if you're not, it's definitely something to, to dive into and start to understand. And pain typing, I think, is really important because not all pain is the same. It doesn't all respond to the same treatments. You know, some, some of it doesn't respond to almost any treatment. And being able to understand that, being able to set expectations for patients based on their pain type, I think is a really important thing to do. And it helps us interrogate what the, um, the pathophysiological processes are and what the neuroimmune processes might be. And it helps us to, I think, go through a management plan that is prioritised according to the factors that are at play for the individual. And that's, I think, key for, for helping any persistent pain patient. Um, so the bottom line is if we're not making the distinction about what sort of pain we're dealing with, we're, we're likely managing a, a big chunk of our, our patients suboptimally. And that, that doesn't mean we're managing them really badly. It doesn't mean we're taking advantage of them. It just means we could be offering them more bang for their buck. Um, and we could be creating more of the, the patients that we want, the, the 
positive responders, the ones who walk away and say, hey, that was really great. That, that actually changed things for me. Um, and unfortunately, if we're not, if we're not doing that, we're, we're likely inadvertently increasing risk of distress and, and qualification. So I think these things are, are, are really important to, to start out with. Um, the other point that I made was, was around expectations. And there is a huge body of literature that tells us that setting expectations that are realistic um, is, is a really important step for patients. And expectation and violation of expectation is critical when it comes to managing pain. So I, I think that's that's a concept we, we need to get a little bit better at. So these factors, I think, are as true for headache as any other pain condition. The next step, I would say, is trying to marry up the two, kind of going, okay, we've got the IHS classification, we've got different pain types, how do we work these together? And it's not a, a perfect fit, okay? And, and there is definitely arguments to be made for mixed pictures and there's, you know, discussion about what type of headache would technically fall into which category. But largely, I would say most of our primary headaches, so the ones we really see commonly are migraines, tension type headaches, kind of hemicranial pain and, and cluster headaches. Most of these really are what we consider nociplastic pain, where we've got significant um, sensitization at play, okay, and we've got neuroplastic uh, change either short or long-term underpinning these, but particularly in the case of persistent recurrent headaches, there's no, no doubt that, that nociplastic change is, is at play. When we're dealing with nociplastic um, pain, it's, it's really important to understand that you can have uh, both nociceptive and neuropathic elements, okay? Nociplastic change is a feature of both. It can lead to hyperalgesia, dysthesias, allodynia, all of those sorts of things that we would more commonly associate. We also start to see a broader picture that extends beyond our kind of musculoskeletal um, pain presentations and we start to see fatigue and difficulty concentrating. We might see sensitivity, um, temperature changes, all of those things, particularly when sensitization is being centrally driven. Um, and these, I think, are really important distinctions for us to make. Um, so I would make the argument that assessing for sensitization should be a fundamental part of the assessment for all patients in pain. And I think this is probably an element that, that is not generally done very well in, in clinical practice from the, the groups that I've worked with. Um, and I think the really important thing to, to understand is that assessing this is actually really important and, and holds marked prognostic value even when the diagnosis is clear. So even when patients come to me with a really clear diagnosis and a treatment plan and they've been dealing with something for years, these are still assessments that I would do um, to help me understand what, what's driving their picture. Um, and, and particularly if I can touch on that with, with this idea of sensitization, I think we, in order to manage patients well, we need to identify sensitization we need to be able to, in some way, try to quantify it and understand how big a feature it is. And I think we need to be able to work out, do we think that it's a process that is being driven kind of top down or bottom up? And that then allows us to ensure that all treatments, you know, biomedical, manual, exercise-based, all of those treatments, psychological, can all be geared to the factors that are affecting that patient. Because we know there's exercise, evidence for exercise, we know there's evidence for psychological um, interventions, there's evidence for different pain medications, but who needs what is really the, the question that we, we need to try to answer. And this can help us on that, that path. Our secondary headaches um, 
you know, if we're, we're coming back to this idea of, of pain, then really what we're dealing with, our, we've obviously neuropathic uh, headaches and uh, neuropathic pain. Um, and if our primaries are our nociplastic, then our secondary headaches are largely our nociceptive type headaches. But it's really important, again, that we acknowledge that any time we're dealing with patients with persistent and recurrent headaches, we're likely dealing with a mixed pain picture, okay? And nociplastic change will be an element of that. Um, so again, the, the, the bottom line here is understanding and trying to quantify when sensitisation is at play, um, how significant a feature that is for that, that patient or how significant a contributor, um, and helping patients ensure that pharmacological and other treatments are geared towards the, their predominant pain type, because that's, that's really what the evidence tells us we should be doing. Now, this is just, again, a bit of a, what we see most is that mixed pain type picture and mixed headache type picture where we might have somebody who has, or who started out with, you know, a, a cervical injury that started getting uh, headaches as a result, fairly simple cervicogenic type referral has ended up in a broader um, sort of tension type headache picture and at some point with the right trigger may even spill over into a migraine phenomenon okay and so headaches particularly chronic headaches can get really messy um, and so my kind of i guess tip is where you don't know how to work through that messiness the take-home message is use the tools that we have at our disposal and I'll, I'll come to that in, in a bit. So what does all of this mean for, for managing our patients? And really it means that a lot of our interventions and a lot of the things that we're doing day to day, we can keep doing. You know, pain science doesn't mean we have to stop treating our patients. It doesn't mean we have to stop doing hands-on work. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to refer them off to other people, but it means that we need to interrogate what we do so that when we're formulating a treatment plan, we can ensure that we're gearing our strategies, our self-management and hands-on and exercise-based strategies. Um, we can gear all of it towards the factors that are actually critical for that patient. Um, so I think we need to rethink it a little. And a big part of that is I think we need to be striving to, to take a more physiological view of our patients rather than a, a, an anatomical view because we know the pathoanatomical model doesn't work. Um, we know that for a whole bunch of, of persistent musculoskeletal conditions, the same is true for, for persistent and recurrent headaches. So... If I were to take an overview of, I guess, how we look at and how we manage our patients, the first thing is, you know, we all start out with a detailed history, um, an interview. Everyone's familiar with this kind of concept. What are the key things that I think we need to focus on? The first thing we're, we're probably doing is really those two things are pain typing and um, the headache classification. So what are we likely dealing with? And we're going to look at things like the, the distribution of, of any symptoms. Are we um, dealing with neurological, non-neurological distributions? Have we got focal or widespread issues? Does it relate to trauma? You know, does it relate to a known pathology? All of those things, you know, do we have burning or electric pain that might tell us we could have a, a neuropathic issue at play? And also, particularly with our associated symptoms, this is a, a really big issue, I think, with our headache patients. Um, obviously, we're looking at the, the sensory and motor changes that might indicate other pathologies, other kind of neurological pathologies. But more commonly, what I'm looking at is, do we have broader indications of autonomic disturbance? Do we have fatigue and GI upset do we have other chronic overlapping pain syndromes um, that we need to consider because that's 
screaming at you that this is a centrally driven problem, that just treating somebody's neck, even if you're using great exercise rehabilitation strategies, it's not going to cut it. You know, so we need to look at the whole person here. And I would throw, you know, our yellow flags and so forth into that, that bucket as well. Um, but again, you know, I might be putting a the, the horse before the cart a little there. The first thing we're trying to do is rule out significant sinister pathology. So really understanding, you know, the factors that make things worse and, and better can also help us work through do we think we've got a, a primary headache here or a secondary headache or a neuropathic headache so we do this day in day out and i'm sure i don't need to sort of dive into that in any more detail um, we've then got a bunch of headache specific questions again everyone would be fairly familiar with this you know first or worst headache typical headache how often do you use medications for headache? What other medications do you use? Trying to put a, a picture together. That's really important. And obviously these processes need to take place. But when I look at some of the guidelines and there is this emphasis, I, I want to just point out that these are all very bio. And if we're looking at biopsychosocial, there's really not much in here um, that we're seeing with our specific headache questions that are psychosocial. So that's just a reminder. I'll come back to this in, in two ticks. It's just a reminder, don't forget the psychosocial questions. And, and they don't have to be a, a, a big deal. They don't have to be a big kind of, you know, dive in, but basic things like flagging with the patient, what do you think might be causing this? And how are you coping with things? Is it getting you down? How's it affecting your work, your social life? Getting that, that overview is really important because these sorts of, of psychosocial factors, these are often the reason when they're not addressed that patients don't get better. And, you know, as practitioners, we all tend to look at ourselves when patients don't get better. Um, but actually identifying some of these is, is really critical. And I'll, I'll talk about those more in a tick. So I've included a few um, tables here from the NICE guidelines. I'm not going through them, but these are just basic things around, um, you know, what are the key questions we ask? When red flags are popping up, what are they actually red flags for? Everybody knows that, you know, if a patient gets a headache that's worse with um, a Valsalva maneuver, we all start to go, well, that, that could be a red flag, or a red flag for what? This, this table will kind of help there. Some key questions for headache typing. Um, the idea here is that these, these guidelines in particular are designed to help us work through what sort of headache are we dealing with in sort of under 10 minutes. So come back to those at a, a later point. Um, and then this is just an overview of the characteristics of different headaches. So just as a, a recap, this was something I alluded to a little earlier when I was talking about those associated symptoms. This is um, from a chronic pain um, white paper that was, was released a few years ago, but I love that it so beautifully brings together all of the chronic overlapping pain syndromes and we start to really see how, you know, when we all studied pathology and we talked about endometriosis, you know, affecting say 7% of the population and we talked about irritable bowel affecting another 7%. It's clearly not 7%, I'm just throwing in a number. Um, and fibromyalgia, what, what we fail sometimes to see is it's that same 6 or 7% of poor buggers who have got all of these things happening. And headache, chronic migraine, chronic tension type headaches really commonly fall into this sort of picture. So when we're talking about taking the overview of the patient we need to be looking at these sorts of things. Um, and I would encourage people when they're, they're looking at this to really understand what that means for the patient, that that really means this is likely a centrally driven process. It's top down. And if we just apply bottom up treatment sort of modalities and, and thought processes, we're not going to be helping them. So we need to look at the bigger picture, and, and this is really about that. The other thing I would encourage you to do is, so this is just the 
well-defined chronic overlapping pain syndromes. But we know that persistent pain is a neurological phenomenon. It's also an immune phenomenon and an endocrine phenomenon. And starting to think about how those factors might feature in here and, and seeing how depression and anxiety might overlay this picture or multiple chemical sensitivities um, and even simple things like asthma and hay fever and eczema and starting to understand how this creates a picture that I'm not necessarily, necessarily saying we need to treat or manage, but it, seeing that picture should change how you manage this patient not necessarily trying to treat someone's asthma. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it clearly tells us that the lifestyle factors, the diet, the exercise, the sleep hygiene, all of those things become much bigger factors for a patient with these chronic overlapping pain syndromes than regular cervical stretching. You know, and, and identifying which strategies are for who is, is really important. So these are the tools that I, I mentioned, um, and I'm just checking the, the time, sorry, just to make sure I'm not taking up too much time. Okay, um, you're on track, you're right. Yep, uh, so these are just some of the tools, and I'm not gonna go into them all in detail. Um, I've put them here, and they're, they're linked so that people can come back to them. I've, you know, I'm, I'm a, a clinician, and I work with patients, and I, I understand the time, pressures, and constraints, but these things I've selected all patient completed measures so you don't have to do these um, in my practice we give patients these when they come in on an ipad they fill it out as part of their um, their, their history so i see the this sort of data from the get-go uh, so i get a complete picture it's not an afterthought when a patient's not responding and going oh well you know by then you've you've lost faith you've wasted time so doing this sort of stuff i think up front is is important pain detect is really about identifying neuropathic pain these have also all been validated for for use in a variety of uh chronic pain um conditions so they've all been validated for headache use uh, so pain detect is about identifying neuropathic pain. Um, central sensitization inventory is obviously about central sen sensitization. And it does have a really good little, um, the part B is on some of those other things that other conditions, the chronic overlapping pain syndromes. So we can identify those people more readily. Um, and the pain sensitivity questionnaire is really just about understanding when patients are sensitized. Um, and the reason I like that one is that, again, trying to understand how much of a factor this is for a patient. This is probably the only tool we have that is um, somewhat comparable to quantitative uh, pain testing and, and sensory testing that we, we don't really have access to in, in a clinical setting. So that's really helpful. These are our screening tools for psychosocial flags. Um, really, I think our aim at this point should be we're trying to make distinctions about what patients are patients for us and which patients need broader care teams in place and particularly what we we want to talk about here I think is obviously everyone's really familiar with uh, yellow flags a few years back we had the um, addition of orange flags and I don't think many people are really good at understanding and assessing for orange versus yellow flags okay and the, the key there is are we dealing with personality traits that might be a person who's prone to anxiety or prone to catastrophizing in the right setting or are we actually dealing with orange flags where the patient has a diagnosable condition that actually requires treatment in order for any of our interventions to be able to work so we, we're probably really great at managing those yellow flag patients. Identifying the orange flag patients is a real clear, you can't do this alone, you need a broader team. And I think that's an important distinction to make if we're going to get patients on the right track for them. Okay, so again, I'm not going through all of these, I'm, I'm skimming, but, but the content is there for, for people to, to have a look at. 
the clinical examination has always been, um, again, very clearly we want to identify, do we have red flags and does our examination give us any indication that we might have sinister pathology at play? So with our secondary headaches, we need to be doing, you know, a full neuro exam with, with ophthalmoscopy, uh, looking at vitals, any systems exams that might be indicated and obviously a head and neck exam. Um, and if we're thinking we're dealing with a, a neuropathic cephalgia, then, then you know, a, a cranial nerve exam might suffice. But we'd also do our musculoskeletal examination. But what I'm really arguing, I think, on top of that is we need some sort of objective assessment for, of, of sensitivity. Because anyone can poke something and go, oh, that hurts. That may be a pain driver or a contributor. Um, but the question is, does that actually mean that we've got pathology in the area or are we dealing with a hypersensitized state? That, unless we're answering that question, I, I think our treatment is always going to be a bit hit and miss. You know, we're only ever sort of looking at one half of the equation. Um, so some of the assessments we might do are things like sharp hyperalgesia, assessing for allodynia and, and latent allodynia, cold hyperalgesia and neural mechanosensitivity. I'll touch on each of those just very, very briefly. I'm sure, again, we, we do most of this stuff, but potentially I think we could do it um, more systematically and, and certainly uh, more regularly with our, our patients. I think there's a, a lot of value in it. So sharp hyperalgesia and allodynia assessments, really what we're, we're looking at is if we're using a pin, you know, if we give someone a little prick, what's their response? Is it normal or is it heightened? You know, are we starting to see withdrawal reflexes or muscle spasms? Do we start to see kind of local neuroimmune activation, potentially welts I've seen pop up on some patients? You know, do we have signs that we've got local sensitization? Um, and as we're assessing this, if we're looking at multiple areas of the body, do we start to get an indication that actually what we've got is central sensitization and much broader areas being involved? And obviously sharp hyperalgesia is where we're using a sharp stimulus. Allodynia is really where we're talking about getting you know, provocation of pain from a benign stimulus, so light touch or, or something to that effect. In both cases, um, we tend to do repeated stimulation. Um, we're looking for either sort of summation of a response or a, a de delayed or latent response. And those things are both markers of, of sensitization. So we can assess for those things really simply, I think. And there's, there's a lot of value in, in identifying that. Cold hyperalgesia is an, another, the, the clinical ice pain test is a really simple thing to do. All you have to have in your clinic is an ice cube, okay, um, or a, a cold pack. And basically what we're looking at is if we hold it on your skin for a few seconds or technically for five seconds, um, are we getting pain? Because that in, its, in itself shouldn't be a painful phenomenon. It might be mildly, you know, uncomfortable. But where we start to see people rating their pain you know, five or above out of 10, then we start to see that they become really likely to have cold hyperalgesia at play. And, and what this basically means is that we've got, you know, a bunch of really benign environmental triggers that are likely contributing to patients' uh, headaches. Now, these things we can obviously assess on the head and on the face, but so commonly we see those headache patients with that real sort of coat hanger distribution of, of sensitivity and, and symptoms, musculoskeletal perceived symptoms. Um, so assessing that whole area, I think, is, is invaluable in working out what's going on. Um, and neural mechanosensitivity, I think, is really commonplace now where most of us would be doing some form um, of neurodynamic testing and nerve palpation to try to understand um, where we've got um, mechanosensitivity at play in, in a, a patient's pain condition. So I think those things um, are, are really helpful. And again, they also, you know, all of these things lead us not only to understand the physiological mechanisms that are driving someone's pain, but they also open up very specific treatment 
um, pathways for, for patients that should be, you know, geared towards um, desensitisation strategies in, in this particular case. Uh, once we establish that we do have um, sensitisation at play and understanding where that sensitisation is and if we can start to try to quantify the, the impact of it, I think one of the really important things we can do is start to really understand are we dealing with something that is um, being maintained or driven top down meaning it's, it's centrally driven sensitisation, or are we looking at kind of a bottom-up um, driver of, of sensitisation? Because that really allows us to put our patients in two distinctly different baskets that, that tell us of all of our strategies that we've got, which, which ones are going to be our A game? You know, where, where are we likely to actually really change things for a patient? So I think, I think we all need to, to reflect on that in a, a more formal way when we're, we're formulating care plans. Uh, sorry. So overall, the implications for, for management, what does all of this mean? Um, I think first that we need to identify that headache is not a singular entity or pathology and treating all of our headache patients with the same basic care plan is never going to work. For, for that reason. So we need to, to identify that we've got different pathological mechanisms um, that, that create distinct different headache types that will respond to distinctly different treatments. Um, so we need to also identify, I think, that most primary and recurrent and chronic headaches um, involve some degree of nociceptive dysfunction um, and, and sensitization, whether that's short term or, or longer term. Um, but the good news, I think, is that mind-body therapies like neurofeedback, like meditation and relaxation, exercise, CBT, all of these things actually have been shown to be really effective in managing these headaches and effective certainly in um, both a, a treatment sense. We find that these sorts of strategies are as effective at managing headaches as pharmaceutical uh, strategies, um, but they're also as effective in a prophylactic sense. So when we look at effect size and we look at how much can we reduce the frequency and intensity of, of headaches for patients with these strategies, the bottom line is we can do it just as well with these strategies as we can um, with pharmacological strategies for, for most people. There's always going to be outliers. You're always going to find people who are non-responders and, and working through, you know, the, the options with the individual is, is always going to be paramount. Um, but meta-analyses of a, a range of RCTs have shown that, that these things alone or in combination with, with um, a range of medicines are really important for reducing the, the symptoms and the impact of migraine, tension and mixed headache types. So the other thing to, to really I th um, remember is that these therapies are often really cheap and accessible for, for patients um, and they're exceedingly safe and, and any kind of, you know, side effects tend to be very minor and, and temporary and transient. So, you know, we've got no real arguments to not... Um, play a starring role in, in headache management, I think, as, as, you know, allied practitioners. So just a quick review of these, the, the evidence for these. Um, as we said, we've, with migraine, we've got really good evidence to show that these treatments can reduce migraine symptoms. You know, this told us it was between 32 and 49% when we compared it to people who had no no treatments. Um, and that's in keeping with, with previous literature. So, so we, I think that's a fairly reliable um, assumption. When we look at comparing them to drug treatments, again, we found that the benefits and effect sizes were, were comparable. So again, as a first um, line of, of intervention, I think we can play that, that starring role and then move on to other strategies when we find non-responders. Um, 
And again, when we're talking treatment versus prophylaxis, we find that when we look at our, our prophylactic drugs, our beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, that it, again, it's, it's sort of comparable. And the evidence for this um, is high level evidence. So I think we can, can rely on that. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out is tension headaches. Again, we, we find a similar uh, magnitude of, of improvement. And again, we're talking about meta-analysis here of, of RCTs where we're comparing to control patients. So again, this information is, you know, it's, it's a little bit of cherry picking, but it's really important to acknowledge that it's in the broader um, sort of picture of, of it, you know, what everything else is also telling us. And here, when we're talking about mixed and, and chronic headaches, same thing, um, good evidence. We, we find that this stuff is highly effective, very low risk. And the other point is that it, it's just as useful in kids and, and adolescents as it is in adults. Um, the last point on this one I wanted to, to make was that when we're dealing with these patients who are complex, have lots of yellow and orange flags at play and may have some of those blue and black kind of work-related flags, financial stresses, the evidence suggests that even when these things are done at home, primary, primarily self-managed, utilising apps and educational resources, we get the same effect um, for, you know, basically 20% of the cost for patients. So I'm a big advocate of using our professionals, but where financial limiters are at play, we can really comfortably use some of those, those cheaper resources. So the question that every manual therapist wants to know is manual treatment still on the table? And absolutely, um, in cases where we've got that bottom-up um, predominance of sensitization, absolutely that stuff is really, it, it can be invaluable and it can be what helps patients turn corners. Um, so soft tissue is basically just non-threatening cutaneous stimulation. HVLAs, mobilisation, nerve mobilisation and DNM type techniques all have good evidence, okay, for being effective. They're not a cure-all. They can't be the main thing. They only work in context of a broader treatment plan that includes physical activity and exercise. Meditation and relaxation training is important. Biofeedback mechanisms work and are invaluable, particularly with tension-type headaches. CBT um, and other psychotherapies and medicines are all really critical as appropriate. Our job needs to be to take all of these options and work out who needs what and hold a patient's hand going through the, you know, the swings and roundabouts that, that inevitably are there until they get to a workable treatment plan. So there's a bit of toing and froing, but most of what we're doing is right. We just need to work out when and for who. Amazing. I've just stopped sharing your screen. Yeah. Uh, I am I, sure that I can speak on behalf of everybody who walked through that. Your knowledge, intellect, expertise as a leader in this pain science space, we are so lucky to have you. And I just really want to thank you for your time. I think That's even my pleasure. Even sitting there going through that for me, there are a couple of take-home messages for, for myself who's even been out 20 years in practice. The orange flags, we, we don't talk about them enough. So it's really good to revisit those, particularly in that they're one of the main sources from, from what I can gather, being what would direct us to refer to that wider team of health yeah. support. Yeah. And if you've got them coming up, those orange flags, that's when we know to send off to a psychologist or, absolutely. or pain manager. Am I correct in? in yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's a really clear indicator. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we can manage all yellow flags. What I'm saying is that, you know, we, we want to identify those orange flags, I think, straight up tell me this person needs a, a broader treatment team they need to have their gp on board they need to have some sort of talk therapy happening and potentially they may need kind of pharmacological management of those those symptoms or of those conditions separate to whatever pain condition we're managing and if if we don't have those things in place we're we're always setting those people up for failure um, and 
you know, when I, I look at the impact that these things have on people's lives, it's just unconscionable when, when we can do it so readily and it can be done delicately at the get-go, you know, I, I just think we need to, you know, this, this shouldn't be an option. Um, but as I said, I, I think while we've, we've probably got really good at understanding yellow flags, I, I don't think we have much discussion of, of orange flags. And I think that's, I think that's a real shortcoming. And, I, and I, the other key point that I kept hearing there towards the end was that sensitization differentiation. I think mm. we do bundle pain in too much and, and all of those different processes and how we actually test for that clinically is really important. We've all got our neuro kits in our rooms and we all understand the importance of differentiating pain, but the sensitization is, is really important there. So for me, thank you for, I guess, refreshing the importance of that. I guess the, the other, one of the things I want to talk about, which I think comes up a lot, particularly with my team, is our role. And what I got out of this in the end is we have a very crucial role in this, even in the biopsychosocial pattern, where we know that hands-on is really important. We know that movement is really important. And whilst we're not psychologists, our role in this, in dealing with chronic pain, is pretty invaluable for most of our patients. Our patients would attest to that. And then bringing this evidence-based medicine into it, we are providing high-value care. So my question to you is, what do you say to those new graduates who have somebody who's been coming in week after week with chronic migraines or chronic headaches, and you're definitely making a, a difference physically, and you're creating tissue texture change, and you're getting a reduction in pain, but obviously with that trigger still there being very chronic, maybe somebody who's had pain for five years, how do you explain the role in rebooking those patients without the ethical battle of, well, I'm at, am I actually providing high-value care doing this every week? What's your take on that? I So usually one of the things I tend to do with chronic patients is I tend to kind of set out a, you know, a list of all of the things that this patient could do, um, all of the interventions that are available to them. I will very clearly cross off for the, the things that are frankly just horseshit, you know, where there is no evidence that they're going to be pouring time and energy into something that's not helpful. I try to help patients kind of work through, you know, any patient who Googles will get a hundred different things that they could do, you know, to, to manage a headache, take magnesium or do this, or, you know, everybody's got an opinion. Most people don't know what they're talking about. I see my job as very, very crucially helping patients wade through all of that. So I'll scribble it all up for them and go, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. This is what you're left with. What do you feel works for you? And there are some biases in that, but it does get people on board. Um, and I think that's really critical. And in that, they'll really tell you whether hands-on treatment has been invaluable um, and whether it's worthwhile doing. Now, hands-on treatment can be really helpful, but I would always see it as... Um, my plan should always be to, to take them from those kind of passive strategies and try to create more reliance on active strategies. And so, you know, in order to get them to do the exercise that they need to do and live a, a healthier lifestyle, they might actually need more hands-on treatment early on to support them in that. So I don't have too much of an issue with treating patients and even treating them fairly regularly in order to achieve the bigger picture change because you're not going to take a chronic migrainer and change their life in three treatments and if you think you're going to you're kidding yourself you're setting yourself up for for failure and, and professional burnout you're also setting them up for failure so i think you need to identify that some patients are a long haul they do take lots of hand holding and you know you might not be creating the change that you want but as long as they are incrementally moving in the right direction and you can see that not only are their symptoms changing but they're becoming more self-reliant then i don't think there's any great harm done the question often becomes about um 
I think holding space and sort of going, if, if I'm not playing this role, then who is? And are they going to, to do it in a way that is um, kind of building that, that long-term self-efficacy that this person needs? And it's, it's very true. I mean, we're certainly not attempting to be psychologists. We know where our no. practice lies. And even, you know, the amazing Rachel Zoffner's pain mastery project, she's a psychologist in San Diego. Yeah. She speaks very, very highly of the role that allied health and healthcare professionals and physical therapists play in this biopsychosocial role. And the fact that an entire team of people supporting this one individual is, is often better. And so that's where the orange flags come in. But also takes me to my, my last question for you is the placebo effect. You know, there's a lot of opinions when it comes to this. And often I know personally, and again, I'm not putting myself in a big sample space, but just talking to a patient, talking these things through, or even like a calming app, talking is therapy and coming into a consultation sometimes, just having somebody there to be able to talk about pain yeah. can be really important in itself. And even the, the placebo effect of medication, I mean, there is a role to play in placebo I, I don't know if that it's we are we're all social and emotional beings and so this idea that you know these things are only a placebo effect and you know we need to understand when we're talking biopsychosocial the psychosocial is still biological you know when we're talking about psychosocial things and we're talking about anxiety we need to understand that anxiety has a flow-on effect that is biological. So there is an emotional experience and there are social implications, but we can biologize those things as well. So I, I think the idea of, of placebo, people kind of misconstrue it a little bit. And, and I think we need to understand that interaction is intervention, you know, in, in whatever context, because being heard, being believed, they are critical elements for patients in, in long-term pain. Um, and they are critical elements, I think. And again, this is really, I think, where psychological support comes, comes to the fore for these patients is that, you know, th those elements are really important for decreasing distress. And as long as a person is distressed and you're driving central sensitivity continually because their system is continually feeling under threat, you're not going to create any change, you know. And and, panic, and, yeah, panic yeah, is the root of fear. And so if people are afraid, yeah. it's usually because they don't know. So communication, questionnaireing, all of that sort of stuff, this is where all that comes into it so that our role as practitioners is to calm everything and that's where the mind-body therapy component that you were talking about before that is so valuable in, and for us to appreciate that our value is more than just Hand our hands and yeah and yeah we can, we just cannot go on treating patients like they are a bag of bones you know they 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 are whole people and their thoughts their feelings their beliefs their their, their background and history all of that stuff matters and it, it matters a lot um and we you know I, i've said a, a million times over we need to be much much better at talking and, and asking questions about all of the things that relate to someone's pain, not just their injury. And that means, you know, asking all of the awkward and uncomfortable questions and asking people, you know, point blank, why are you so scared of this? What is it in this for you that, that has you so terrified? Because from where I sit, you know, we're dealing with a relatively minor problem that we should be able to overcome but then i see you terrified and fearful that this is lifelong and you know so there's there's something in here that we need to identify and and work through and and having those discussions can can change things for people and and it's my belief that as healthcare practitioners we are leaders we're leaders in the treatment room where the Absolutely. voice of calm amongst the chaos and where the person that is the familiar face that makes them when they're scared reassures them that everything is okay or if it's not 
that we're going to take action and measures to make sure that they're in the right hands with the right people. So, yeah. look, I knew that we could probably talk about this all day. Yeah, I just yeah, wanted yeah. to thank you again for those people watching at home. I'm sure that you've loved this and you want more. So, trust me, I am in talks with Della to be able to deliver more of her amazing courses. She's kind of disappeared for a while, but I'm doing everything in my power to bring her back. Hashtag bring Della back. Um, thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you again, Della, for your time. Amazing. Um, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all the time you put into those slides. Yeah, easy done. Thanks. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.